For centuries, Christianity has been dominant across the West and it's brought misery to millions. And it's repressed people's rightful search for enjoyment, but thankfully it's dying out now. It's in decline. As knowledge and education advance, Christianity is just on its way out, dying out. And in response, some churches, oh, well, they get, they despair. Don't expect any converts, pull up the drawbridge, focus inwards, no hope. Other churches get desperate. Well, we better change the message. We better get with the times, otherwise we're going to die out. Everything I've just said is completely wrong completely wrong. I was a bit worried someone might jump up and stop me because I hope you recognised it was wrong. What I've just said, those claims about Christianity's past and present and future, and they are what many people think, maybe most people in the UK today, is completely wrong. Those reactions, those two different reactions of the churches are completely wrong. This morning, I want you to be persuaded that the opposite is true. That the opposite of what I've just said is true. I want you to be persuaded that Jesus' rule is going to grow and grow and it brings joy and goodness to many. So don't focus in, reach out. Now, we are starting the year, if you were here last week, you might remember with a reminder of the church's vision. Could we have the diagram on the screen? We did this last year, we're doing it again this year. So last week we heard that we must be a church that is looking up, depending on God and everything for his glory. This week we must be a church that is reaching out. Next week, God willing, that we must be a church that's coming closer. But this morning, reaching out. Now, this is not going to be a message beating and cajoling you, come on, get out and evangelise. Nor is it going to be a message giving you, here are five practicalities to do. Instead, I simply want to do this. Show us Jesus. So we have confidence in him, so we're motivated and encouraged to reach out. It's a massive subject, there's many ways it could be done, but I'm going to focus on that way. Just showing us Jesus, trying to give us confidence so we do reach out. And I want to do it using Psalm 72. So we can remove the uh, diagram and let's turn to Psalm 72. You've got a green sheet, I expect, that tells you the page numbers in the church Bibles. And it also shows you how I intend to go about this. We're going to spend nearly all of the time in Psalm 72, which is point one on that sheet, seeing our king. We're then going to spend a little time elsewhere on our response. What does this mean for those of us who are Christians, the king's messengers? So most of our time on point one in Psalm 72, and then a little time elsewhere on our response. So let's start in Psalm 72, Um, There's loads here, I'm I'm going to be selective and not cover it all. It's a wonderful psalm, I hope it will encourage you to go away and study it more. First of all, who is this psalm about? Now, thousands of years ago, in the ancient land of Israel, David was their greatest king, the greatest king of Israel. And he had a son called Solomon, who was king after him. This psalm is either by David about Solomon 
Or is by Solomon about his son, who was also king? It could be either. I'm not going to go into the different arguments for one or the other. But whichever of those, while it was a prayer for the king of the time, it goes beyond that. It says things that cannot be true of any mere human. It is all pointing forward to a greater king, Jesus. How do I know that? Well, actually, there's lots of reasons. I'll just give you one. Because of the storyline of the Old Testament. Children, did you know that the whole Old Testament has one storyline? Oh yes, there's lots of stories. Do you know them? Adam and Eve, and Noah's Ark, and the Exodus, and Ruth, and King David, and all these different stories. But actually, they're all part of one bigger story. Running through them all is this. God had promised he would send someone who would come and mend the world. And running through all those stories is looking for, has he come yet? When is he coming? What will he be like? And that someone, King David was told, would be a son of his. Well, actually, meaning a descendant, a great, 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 great grandson of his. A David-like king who would rule forever. And when that king, Jesus, was about to be born... Luke chapter 1 says this about him. God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Which is exactly what Psalm 72 says. Luke begins his gospel by telling us Jesus is that Psalm 72 king. So, let's see King Jesus in Psalm 72. First of all, the character of the king. Verse 1. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. Endow. What does that mean? Well, here in Loughborough, the grammar school and the high school, and I think also Fairfield, used to be called the endowed schools. What does that mean? Well, it means someone in the past must have given some money that was to be permanently used for children to be educated at those schools. You see, endow means give permanently. What is the prayer here in verse 1? God, endow, give permanently the king your justice. Do you see that? Give the royal son your righteousness. Your justice, your righteousness. In other words, endow him, give him permanently your character. Now this happened a little bit with Solomon because God gave Solomon wisdom so he could rule justly. But there is only one human who fully, permanently was given the character of God. (coughs) gets into the New Testament and Colossians 1 says God was pleased to have all his character fully living bodily in Jesus. He's the one in verse 1 who is endowed with God's character. Then let's see the caring king. This is verses 2 to 4 and 12 to 14. The caring king. Now, children, picture in your mind an impressive king. Can you do that? Picture in your mind an impressive king. What are you picturing? 
I'm picturing someone in robes, rich, velvety robes with a crown and in a palace and you couldn't get near him. Maybe there are soldiers guarding him. Only the rich and famous can. He spends his time on the important and the successful people. Now, this, king isn't like, this king isn't like that. Verse 4. Verse 4. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. Who does this king listen to? Is it Rupert Murdoch and the presidents and the powerful? Verse 12. For he will deliver the needy who cry out. That means he must be near them and listening to them. Verse 13. He will take pity on the weak and needy and save the needy from death. And the very first time that Jesus preached, he said this was his agenda. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, describes the very first sermon Jesus preached. And it says, Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. That's interesting. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil to show their king. He says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. I'm the anointed king, but the Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to release the oppressed. That's what Psalm 72 says. How would he do it? Well, the people of the time thought he'd do it by getting rid of the Roman army who were oppressing them. There they were, a little nation with the Roman Empire had come in and it was oppressing them and they thought, when the Messiah, the promised king comes, he'll drive out the Romans. But the trouble is, that would be so short term. (coughs) Get rid of the Romans, you'll soon have another oppressor come in. Whether it's a big-scale oppressor like Putin or a small-scale oppressor like an abusive husband or an exploiting employer. Get rid of one, another one will soon rise up. And so Jesus, instead of just getting rid of the Romans, he got to the root of the problem. Jesus instead got to the root of the problem. Look at the end of verse 4. Verse 4. He will crush the oppressor. Crush. I wonder if this rings a bell for any of the children here. Or the adults, for that matter. Crush. Think of Genesis 3. Do you know Genesis 3? God promised someone who would come and he would crush. What am I thinking of? He said, someone's coming who's going to crush the snake's head. And the snake was Satan. The oppressor behind all oppressors, Satan, the devil. And Jesus died on the cross to crush him so that one day he'll be removed from this world. Now, the devil isn't the only problem around here. The devil isn't the only problem. So let's look at verse 13. Verse 13. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. What sort of image does verse 13 give you? What sort of image do you get? The image I have comes from, as a child, reading Robin Hood books. Here's the sort of image I get of verse 13. A poor Saxon woman. And she's done nothing wrong and she's thrown into prison by the nasty sheriff of Nottingham. And she's going to be executed. Until back comes good King Richard and he rescues her. 
That's my picture of verse 13. But it's not right. That's not the right image. The image I should have is a multiple murderer on death row. He's going to be executed and quite right too. He should be. But the king pardons him and releases him. And on top of that gives him money and a place in his palace. You see, the needy aren't the innocent, deserving needy. There's no such person. They are the sinful, far from God needy, whose sin should bring them death. But, verse 12, they cry out to King Jesus. And he rescues them. And he pardons them. And he swaps their death for a place in his heavenly palace. Now, of course, that requires King Jesus to die in their place. He can't just do it. He can't just say it. He has to die in their place, otherwise he wouldn't be verse 1. Do you remember verse 1? He must be the king of God's justice and God's righteousness. And so he must die in their place so he can rescue the needy who deserve death. Do you recognise yourself in what I've just described? Do you recognise and admit you are that sort of needy? Needy in that I deserve death from God sort of way? And have you done verse 12? Have you done verse 12? Look, it's very clear. Cry out to Jesus. Admit to him you've got no one to help. He is the only one who can help you. Say to him, take pity on me. Verse 13. And you've got God's word here. God's word that says... He will do it. God tells you here, Jesus will listen to that prayer and he will rescue you. We've had the character of the king in verse 1. We've had the caring king. We have next the conquering king. This is verses 5 to 11 and 15 to 17. In fact, this is the main message of Psalm 72, is this king will be successful. This king will have a kingdom just far greater than anyone else. It's greater in how far it spreads. Let's have a look at verse 8. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, in Solomon's day, that could mean Israel because they talked about going from the river Euphrates to, for them, the end of the earth was the Mediterranean coast. So, it could in Solomon's day just mean Israel. But you get to the New Testament and it gives you a different way of reading it because it says, take the ends of the earth, literally. It says, this king is going to rule globally. And so you get verse 10. The kings of Tarshish. Do you know where Tarshish was? Southern Spain. And it refers to Sheba. Do you know where Sheba was? Southern Arabia. And then there's Seba. Do you know where Seba was? Ethiopia. If you can picture on a map from southern Spain across to Arabia and down to Ethiopia, that's pretty big. But then, look how much bigger it gets. Verse 11. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. What's a nation? Well, you might say UK, USA. Yes, now, but back then they didn't think like that. 
didn't have nation states in the same way as us. This word nation is more like an ethnic group. It's more like a tribe. The Old Testament prophecy said King Jesus will have people who trust him as saviour and obey him as king from every ethnic group, every tribe, every language group in the world. Tribes that Solomon hadn't heard of south of Ethiopia. Nations he had no knowledge of out across Asia. Ethnic groups he couldn't imagine in the Americas that he didn't even know existed. King Jesus will be served in them all. That's what the Old Testament prophecies say. This king will be greater than any other in how far his kingdom spreads and also in how long he rules. How long he rules. Children, what happened in 1952 that's to do with royalty and ruling? 1952. That's 70 years ago. It was Elizabeth II became queen and she reigned for 70 years. Do you think that's a long time? Yeah, it's a long time, isn't it? Most of us here were not born back then. And those who were probably have a bit of a job to remember it a long time ago. But, Ben, let's have a timeline on the screen. There we go. That's Elizabeth reigning that little bit at the end there. Just that little bit at the end there. But back in 33 AD, a weak-looking ex-carpenter was crucified. He died on the cross, a total failure, apparently. And then he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he was crowned and he has been king when the Roman Empire ended, when the Battle of Hastings was fought, when the Qing dynasty started and he still is and he always will be. Elizabeth II is nothing in comparison, just a little blip. Have a look at verse 5. Verse 5. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. This isn't just Solomon. There's only one man, the God-man. This is. He's the caring king, the conquering king. He's the covenant-fulfilling king. Do you know what a covenant is? It's a solemn promise where two people bind themselves to each other. They don't just agree to do something, they agree to be bound together in relationship. And hundreds of years before this psalm, God made a covenant to a man called Abraham. And he said, you are going to have a descendant, someone will come from you, and he will bless all nations, and all nations will call him blessed. And now this psalm tells us King Jesus is that man. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Exactly the words of the covenant with Abraham. All nations will be blessed through him. And they will call him blessed. Through that King Jesus, blessing has come to a rainy island that Solomon never knew about. An island just on the edge of the Atlantic that's particularly rainy and grey and where the people sacrificed humans and worshipped the sun at a funny stone monument until the good news of Jesus came to them. Do you know the island I'm talking about? Britain. 
Or here's another example. When I was a child, we used to have a visitor come to our church called Chuba Owl. I don't know if I've said his name right, but anyway, he was from a place in India called Nagaland. And in Nagaland, just, I think, the generation before him, the people had been headhunters. I don't mean they phoned you up and said, would you like to come and work for this bank? I mean, they would chop your head off and keep it as a trophy. But the gospel had come to Nagaland in quite some power. And most of the people were Christians. You see, the blessing of Jesus came to that ethnic group. Remember, nation means ethnic group, language group, tribe. And through Jesus, blessing will come to every ethnic group on this planet. It will happen. Well, I've tried to give you a flavour of Psalm 72. There's a lot I've missed out. But what's it got to do with reaching out? Let's secondly, lastly, have this. Let's go from the king, Jesus, to us, the king's messengers. Let's move on. You don't need to turn on because I'm just going to describe it. But let's move on from Psalm 72 to the New Testament. Second part of the Bible. How does the New Testament start? Do you know what the first words of the New Testament are? The very first words. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the, do you know what? Son of David. It's how it all starts. How the whole New Testament starts. It then goes on in that chapter 1 to repeatedly show he is the son of David. He is the promised son. And then the next chapter, do you know what happens? Clue is, we've just had Christmas. The wise men come and they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And on goes Matthew's gospel with this big theme, Jesus is the Psalm 72 king. That is the theme of the first book of the New Testament. Jesus is the Psalm 72 king. And how does Matthew end? Do you know how Matthew's gospel ends? Jesus came to his disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the Psalm 72 king who will rule to the ends of the earth. And then what did he say? Therefore, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups, all tribes, all language groups. Because Jesus is this king, because of confidence in him and his kingdom that will never end and will always spread and isn't going to go backwards, because his rule will never end and Christianity will not die out and history is his story, go and make him known. Go and show people they should bow to this king and trust in his care. Be a messenger of the king telling people Jesus rules and they need the caring king. It's a simple application, really. But it's all based on this glorious King Jesus. Let me show you an example from history. Um, Do you know the saying, don't judge a book by its cover? Yeah, don't judge a book. Well, I hope you don't judge a book by its cover because let's show you the cover of a book. Yeah, now... I think whoever designed that should be sacked. Yeah? What a poor graphic designer. It's a pretty boring cover. 
But it's a good book, so don't judge a book by its cover, because it's a good book. It's a very interesting book. The Puritans, the Puritans were Christians in Britain in the 1600s, and they took seriously Old Testament prophecy like Psalm 72. And they were convinced Jesus is going to rule worldwide and every ethnic group will bow to him. They were convinced that would happen. Now this was the 1600s. They didn't have aeroplanes. They didn't have the internet. They didn't know how it was going to happen. It looked impossible. But they were convinced it would happen. And eventually, that conviction resulted in missionaries being spreading out the gospel across the world, telling people Jesus is the king. And they did it not because, oh dear, Christianity's dying out, or we're on the back foot. They did it with optimism and with this hope. Okay, we can get rid of the uh, cover, thank you. I'll tell you one example, just one example of one of those missionaries. He was a shoemaker from Northamptonshire. His name was William Carey. And he read Old Testament prophecies like Psalm 72. And he preached a sermon on them. And his sermon, it was a famous sermon, could be summarised like this. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And William Carey was convinced Jesus would win the people of the Pacific Islands for himself. And he wanted to go and be part of that. But he couldn't. Because he was a poor shoemaker. How could a poor shoemaker, back then get to the Pacific Islands. He couldn't. So what did he do? Did he sit and daydream? Did he sit and mull over what he could do if someone gave him a million pounds and he could get across to the Pacific Islands? No. Instead, he did what he could where God had put him. And he reached his family. And he told them about the king they should bow to and whose care they needed. And his family turned to the to Jesus as he spoke the gospel to them. By the way, how was William Carey a Christian? Well, because when he was a shoemaker, his fellow shoemaker had been a Christian and had spoke to him about Jesus. And William Carey at first proudly refused to listen, but eventually he bowed to King Jesus and trusted in his care. And eventually, William Carey was able to go as a missionary, not to the Pacific, but to India. And he expected great things from God and attempted great things for God. Well, there's the model for us. I hope you've seen it. William Carey's a great model for us. See Jesus in the Bible. See the majesty of the caring, conquering, covenant-fulfilling king. And then because of him, reject the world's view of history. That Christianity's had its day and it's just in decline. No, see the true view of history. The kingdom of Jesus will progress and prosper and the nations will be one for Christ. And have that as your goal. And ask God how he may use you in that goal. What does he want you to do in that? Might he be calling you elsewhere? Might he be calling you to particularly give yourself to that? And then, don't just daydream about romantic ideas of how you might one day be a missionary in an exotic place. No, do what you can where he's put you now. Bring to those around you the good news of the conquering, 
but caring king they must bow to and can trust in.